0: Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Cashew podcast channel. My name is Stacey Geringer, and I'm the outreach director at the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. We are excited to share our latest podcast series with you. The series is titled Early Development and Child Welfare and features interviews with a variety of professionals in the fields of early childhood and child welfare. Listeners will enjoy content related to attachment, culture, screening, brain development, infant mental health, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel for future episodes. Thank you for listening and take care. Hello, I'm Chris Johnson. I have worked in Minnesota in child protection
1: for many years, both as a child protection worker and as a supervisor. I'm here with Dr. Salem Solomon, Director of the Child's First Center for Prevention and Early Trauma Treatment at the National Service Office of the Nurse Family Partnership and Child's First. Today, we will be talking about stress biology in order to help child welfare workers promote resilience and healing when working with children and families who have experienced toxic stress. Dr. Solomon, will you first start by briefly describing why early childhood development is so critical to long-term outcomes?
2: For um, sure. Um, you know, humans require a lot more caregiving uh, than any other species um, of similar size. Um, they depend on their caregiver for much longer. Uh, they need them to provide scaffolding as they learn, um, all throughout um, early childhood and beyond. And so, these uh, early years, um, there are really a number of very important considerations here. For example, um, in the uh, other podcasts, you might have heard about sensitive periods, which are uh, periods of time where the brain is incredibly uh, plastic and responsive to the um, messages and information coming at it from the environment. Um, and so that the the timing of events um, and how it overlaps with those sensitive periods is um, very imp- important. Um, and uh, obviously, the impact will be disproportionate depending on uh, where uh, whether you know an event occurred and first event occurred during a sensitive period or not. Um, people tend to think of sensitive periods as being early childhood, but, but I, I, adolescence is another time where um, there's a, a significant amount of, uh, of a brain plasticity occurring. Um, so during that, that early phase of brain development, um, there's a lot of neural activity in the brain. Uh, the brain is producing at a, uh, neurons at an incredibly high rate. Um, and um, what's hap- what happens at that time is that there's a lot of dendritic, what's called dendritic connections, that are happening. And the dendrites are kind of like at the end of nerve neurons, and they're um, the place where that receives messages and signals from other. Um, uh, cells in the in the body, and um, uh, what's happening is that there's a, hu- a huge amount of uh, connections that are occurring much more than we need, and so what the brain then does, um, what what uh, scientists call uh, pruning, uh, what the brain does is it um, kind of uh, prioritizes those connections that are getting used and it disposes of connections that are not being used. And um, some people call it like a use it or lose it kind of approach. And so what happens is that um, the experiences the child is exposed to really impact which of these connections will remain and become the foundation of this child's uh, brain architecture and which will be um, let go of. Um, some people also call it like kind of, it's like moving from dirt roads to highways. So you have all kind of, you move from having all these little uh, connections everywhere to really focusing on the ones that matter the most. Um, so, um, and, and that really impacts uh, all, all kinds of activities, right? It impacts the child's language development, their motor development, uh, and many other functions and complex functions in the child's um, brain.
1: Okay. So just so I'm understanding it sounds like in those early um periods or those sensitive periods you're building the hardware that you keep forever and that the more it gets used the the stronger that hardware is is that kind of what you're saying or is that fair to say? Yeah,
2: that that that's exactly right. Um now I do, I do want to say that we don't want to completely give up on older children and you know we 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 there's still um a chance to to make changes and to uh, um um, impact a young child or an adolescent and even an adult, right? We certainly do believe that we can change the way parents operate. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, it really has to do with um, with um, how much bang you get for your buck, so to speak. So mm-hmm. being able to intervene early uh, when the brain is still plastic and and really very malleable, um, produces faster, um, change uh, uh, low, uh, with less resources and less intensity than what you would need to invest later on to make the same changes. Sure, and yeah, I think that's a really good message that ideally we wanna build it well and
1: build it strong, but that doesn't mean we can't, we can't build and enhance later too. Certainly. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well then how does stress enter into this conversation and what impact does stress have on babies, infants, children's developing brains?
2: Yeah, thanks Chris. So, you know, we've learned um, a lot in the past uh, several years about what happens to a child that's been, uh, that's experienced abuse or neglect um, or institutional care. So for example, uh, the Romanian orphanages have provided us with a lot of um, good information. I mean, it's an unfortunate uh, way to learn about it. Um, but w- what happened in Romania is that in 1966, um, the, the that current regime had uh, banned all forms of contraception. Um, and so what ended up happening is that many babies became abandoned and left at orphanages. Um, the babies were often left for uh, 23 hours in their cribs, um, were deprived of most social interactions. It's important to note that these children did get their basic needs met. They were fed and they were diapered, um, but they, they were really deprived of human connections. Um, And these children made adaptations so they can survive. Um, But unfortunately, those adaptations were at a great cost. right? And so we saw, uh, I don't know if you've seen some of these videos, but uh, severe stunted growth, impaired IQ, um, emotional and behavioral impairments. So so these studies along with many others really cemented the importance of um, what's called the serve and return, which is the kind of this attuned interaction between the caregiver and the baby the the, the uh, back and forth that occurs mm-hmm. between a caring uh, parent and their child and that and and how important that is for the child's um, physical emotional and psychological development um, can serve
1: in return, it, does it have to be the primary caregiver for it to work, so to speak, or can anybody coo and talk and play with a baby and have that help?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, certainly um, an, anyone can. I think mm-hmm. there is a, a, a special um, mm-hmm. bond. You know, people talk about attachment in early childhood, and I, I imagine that that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but um Certainly, the attachment relationship is is incredibly important and essential for the child's development. Um, but of course, the relationship uh, if they're in, in daycare or if if they're seeing if they go visit their grandma, all these relationships work to enhance um, the child's uh, development. In fact, there's uh, some some research that suggests that having different caregivers actually builds um resilience and 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 helps the child because they learn the different the different ways that the different caregivers interact with them they adapt Mm -hmm. um and when you observe children they really kind of know like Mm -hmm. you know this is the way i i do it with mom and this is the way i do it with dad and they adapt to that and that's helpful in terms of learning to be flexible and and adaptable as an adult
1: Sure. Uh, kind of another one of those both ands that we yeah.
2: absolutely want to support
1: the primary caregiver, but anybody who wants to, to interact and support and play and serve and return with babies and, and kids, it and sounds like that's all um,
2: good. We'll get to that later, but the child welfare has a role too in mm-hmm. the serve and return with uh, the children they, they're working with. So, and we'll get to that, I think, when, when we talk more about kind of the, the, the specific role of the child welfare worker. Sure. Sounds
1: good. All right, well, some of us are familiar with the notion of different types of stress. You know, there's positive, tolerable, and toxic stress. What do each of these look like for a child? And what happens to a child in the face of these stressors? And how do primary caregivers fit into the picture? Multi-step question there. (laughs) Loaded question. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with um, the
2: different types of stress, positive, tolerable, and toxic. Okay. Let me. I'm going to back up a little bit and just talk a little bit about uh, stress in general and, and sure. explain kind of how it impacts our, our brain and then and then get into the different types of that's OK. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um, definitely. So, you know, the, the ways our bodies are um, organized adaptively and evolutionarily is to to. Um, um maximize our survival right our our bodies are made to maximize our survival and so when faced with a uh, threat our bodies are uh, uh, adapted to use our sympathetic nervous system uh, to maximize our, our our survival as i said but it comes at a cost to our health and our development uh, especially if those if this is a long term investment so to speak if, we, if our is needing to do that for over and over again or for a lengthy period of time um, we're, when we perceive threat we're we're really programmed to this is what our bodies does and you, you'll you'll we'll all recognize this because it happens to us um, um more often probably than we wish but we have you know this increased heart rate a freeze response we're hypervigilant to the stimulus around us so we're, we're really very um, paying very close attention to everything that's happening around us our muscles um, mobilize because we're ready to fight or flight as they say um, our cardiovascular tone is enhanced our even our immune system is stimulated uh, we experience a decrease in appetite and our cognition is sharpened um, our brain like suddenly we're we're very um sharp you know our thinking mm-hmm. becomes very focused um and we hold off on anything that's not relevant right now right like anything that we don't have that we don't have to do right now we will hold off on um and so this cascade of responses um is is important and adaptive when uh, uh, something threatening happens um but if if there's a chronic activation of this system right like if it's on it's on it's turned on all the time uh this creates damage to our organs and our systems and our tissues um and so and some people call that the allostatic load it's it's a kind of it means like a wear and tear on our body because of all this constant uh, adaptation that we have to go to uh, through um there's also people talk a lot about stress hormones people when they talk about stress hormones they're often meaning cortisol um but there's also but there are many others that are also involved in uh, the way our bodies response um and so so there are hormones that are activated, there are our, our, our bodies activated, um, and then um, there are other elements that impact our stress, things like how long it's lasting, what are we stressed from, uh, what's the context we're in, our age, our sex, our genetic makeup, all of these things uh, work together to impact and to uh, inform how we're gonna respond to our stressful uh, situation. Um, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and I, I mentioned them and uh, they're, they're, it's a little self-serving because uh, um, I'm, I'm a member of the, of the stress network, but uh, they have not an, and I, ref, I would refer you to them as a resource. They have some excellent uh, uh, resources on uh, stress and trauma for children. Um, they define trauma as follows. They say um, that child traumatic stress refers to the physical and emotional response to events threatening life or physical integrity of a child or someone critically important, like for example, a parent or a sibling. So the traumatic event overwhelms the child's capacity to call to cope, which then results in both trauma effects as well as a disruption to the normal development. Um, so from their perspective, um, so from their perspective, uh, what they're really saying is there there are two things that have to happen there has to be a threat that is significant enough that it it that the child is impacted by it and there has to be a lack of available an available adult that can help organize them and and contain the uh, the child and help them make meaning of what happened um and so when we're talking about uh the types of stressors and i wanted to to do this little introduction before I speak about those types of stressors, because it's directly relevant to, to your question about the different levels of um, stress. Um, people, as you mentioned, typically talk about kind of a positive level, a tolerable level, and a toxic level. Um, and when we're talking about positive stress, we're really talking about a brief increase in a child's heart rate uh, accompanied by mild elevation in stress hormones. Um, this is kind of the type of stress that usually motivates us or motivates a child to complete a task. Um, one of the examples that come to mind is like if if a, if a parent were to take their child to get um, a vaccine,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Um, the the the, the child the child is. Um, uh, momentarily uh stressed because there there's going to be a moment when the needle is going to prick them but their parent is there and uh and um they're able to uh get through it without any significant impact to their um to to, to their functioning uh, one could also think of a vaccine shot as being a tolerable level of stress i suppose uh we can think of it that way too um, Another example of positive stress that motivates, um, you know, like um, an older child that has a, a math test and, and so they feel a little stressed, which motivates them to study for their math test. And and so they do well. Um, and so so those types of stressors are considered OK and in some case actually desirable because uh, without some a little bit of uh, stress, we might all. Uh, lack motivation to do most uh, our tasks, including this uh, podcast we're we're, <laughs> we're doing together here, right? Um, so, um, but, Sala,
1: yeah. can I ask a question about that? Of course. Um, because it, it it reminds me of um, something we've talked about in child protection is that the 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 person who's in the shoes at the time is the one who defines the the the, the level of stress you know mm. like um that i think you know there are times when um and and you'll probably get to this when you talk about tolerable or toxic stress mm. you know there are times when kids say you know, this wasn't the trauma, this was the trauma, you know, mm-hmm. or um, I wasn't that scared about the car accident. But when I thought that kid was going to beat me up, I was terrified. Mm. And so, um, you know, just that sense of, you know, stress is also like you talked about the the threat um, that that people define their own threats and, and have their own sense of threats. And sometimes, you know, on the outside looking in, it doesn't look that threatening to me, but I'm not in that kid's shoes. And mm-hmm. and so I don't know, can you speak to yeah, that at
2: all? That's a, a great question and a great comment. And so what when I te- talk about trauma, I usually say potentially traumatic events mm-hmm. um, because I really, uh, I, I agree with you that we don't, n- the same event occur to two children and one of them will respond in a way that suggests that they were traumatized by the event and another child might not mm. um and there are many reasons for that and they don't all have to do with the availability of a, a caring adult because because i that would be um that that would be unfair mm. um it it has to do with the child's temperament uh some some of it has to do with genetics the child's age as we said the duration of the event all of these variables Um, That really impact uh, how one child versus another might respond to the same exact event, and and we see that when there's kind of mass events, right? Like um, like COVID is a great example, right? right? Like we've all uh, been impacted by COVID, obviously not all in the same way, but you could have two children in the same household, um, one able to adapt much better than the other um, to to COVID. And uh, kind of the lack of social interactions and all the other things that came along with it—social stressors, financial stressors, Um, etc.—so thank you for pointing for pointing that out. Um, I think I I didn't talk yet much about the um, about the the toxic stress, right? Um, And so uh, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but but really um, toxic stress has to do with uh, severe prolonged stress in the absence of of a a supportive and the buffering effect of a caring adult. Um, And so particularly so if the source of the stress is the adult which then really leaves the child in an impossible position um, because um, the person they would seek out to help them manage and make sense and contain their stress is is also the source of their stress. Um, So that could really lead to some very uh, distressing experiences for a child it sounds like then
1: when we're observing kids one of the things that's really important is to get a sense of their whole environment you know so how many adults do they have and who are the people that help them through difficult events um, you know because we know you know resilience that can can be you know thriving or surviving in the in the face of stressors and so can you talk a little bit about um you know the impact of um you know you talked about in the absence of a supportive adult, you know maybe just how important it is to understand? Who else is there in that picture, and how that that can have an impact on getting mm-hmm. through
2: these stressors? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I mean I think if um, if you're walking into a um, a household,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, the re and and there may be multiple many reasons that that you may be doing that. Um, for sure, one of the first things you want to understand is um, what does this child's life look like, right? Like who 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 are the who are the who are the people that populate their his life or her life or their their life? Um, what what is what are the relationships between those people like? What is the child getting exposed to on a daily basis? Uh, uh, obviously, along with many other things that you that are really important to assess, like the parents' cap, you know capacities around tolerating stress and managing. Stress, uh, the financial situation in the household, uh, the, uh, the, the the ecological context the child is in, right? Like what, what, what's the community like? Um, mm-hmm. What is the level of uh, violence in the community around this child? Uh, you know, what are the th- kinds of things that this child is getting exposed to on a on a daily basis? Their school, their friends, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. all all important to uh, get a full picture of uh, of who this child is and what they might need. Sure. So then, um, you know, when you talk about positive, tolerable, and
1: toxic stress, if I'm coming into a situation, um, I might know about, you know, just a tiny piece of this family's world. Um, are there things that the that I can look for if I'm coming in, or are there things that the that the parents could be telling us that would say? your child is communicating stress or, you know, mm. you know, cause we, I think we think of like infants cry, you know, or, or something like that, you know, but outside of the very obvious signs that a child is experiencing stress, what does that look like? And what can caregivers look for? What can, what can child welfare workers look for?
2: Um, that's a, I, I find that to be a, like a really difficult question because uh, one of the things I'm really weary of is kind of listing a, a, like a like a number of behaviors, and sure. then having people make um, very big decisions about this family based on on um, minor observations, and and so I I do think that it's really important, like you said earlier, to get a really full um, like a like a really comprehensive assessment of who who this family is. Um, you know, for example, I, I have seen situations where, you know, a child is clingy to their parent and, um, someone will say, oh, they, 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 they have a bad, you know, there's a bad attachment, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we, we don't know that's really premature to make that call, uh, just based on the child's clinginess. Cause we do not know, again, we don't, we don't know what the child's experienced. We don't know what they've been through. We do not know how their parents uh might have uh supported them we don't know this child's uh, temperament coming in and so i'm very um careful about making kind of these broad uh labels based on uh, minor observations what what i like to do is um look at a family over some time uh and and notice uh, things now i i defer to you as the as the child welfare expert because you are in situations sometimes where um, you are walking in, and you do have to make very quick decisions um mm. based on maybe not a lot of data mm. um, and so i'm curious to hear from you, Chris, about um how how would you do that
1: um well, and I think it depends you know in in child protection, sometimes we have a situation that we know requires a child protection response but is not likely to go past this assessment period, so it might be like a like a, a child protection assessment forty five days we go in, we support, and then we come out, or it might have an on we, we might say there 's multiple complicating factors, and so it 's an ongoing case management case and we 're there for three months, six months, or more, or at the extreme level, it might require um, out of home placement um, because of the level of risk um, to the child. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it sounds like kind of what I hear you saying, and 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 what I think we try to do in child welfare is is get as big of a picture as we can, even if we're only there for forty five days to, to to not you know take one situation and say oh there's a bad attachment because the kid wouldn't come to the mom the whole Mm. hour-long visit that i was there Mm. but then maybe to go back the second time and say well what does it look like now or you know does there is there a need for like a, a an evaluation to say you know what's what's going on here or can i suggest some additional support Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the, on the situation and, and how much we'll be able to, to do with that family. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think knowing that there's, you know, the, uh, the impact of stress is so, um, concerning, it's, it's helpful to know that it's, um, to know the background of the, of stress, but it's also... I hear you just saying really complex <laughs> and that we yeah. don't want to overgeneralize. I
2: mean, for sure, I mean, for sure, you know, there are some kind of very general, like if we're seeing a, a lot of aggression in a young child mm-hmm. or, or withdrawal, which um, we don't, often pay as much attention to as aggression right because because it's mm-hmm. not as disruptive mm-hmm. um or we see a pattern of uh, you know problems at school where the child keeps getting uh, expelled in their from er- their early childhood and education setting um mm-hmm. you know, certainly these would be red flags and, and it would make us wonder about what what is going on it would prompt us to seek more more information to understand what's happening I guess I'm just cautioning against quickly jumping to to uh, judgment about why the child is is that way, and um, mm-hmm. trying to, under, mm-hmm. to take time to understand. So, like in child first, what we do is we go through a, a multi-week period of uh, of an ass, of assessment, and we use uh, the k- kind of a tool we we use. It's an internal tool called the Caregiver-Child Interaction Scale, which is really supposed to average out. Your impressions over a period of time, so that you're not just looking at a child for ten minutes and making decisions, like what if the child was sick or hungry those ten minutes right that you happen to be observing them, so you're really taking time to to look over time at um at the relationship between the parent and the child
1: great, that's really helpful. I mean, I think it's really helpful to understand. Um, you know how impactful um, toxic stress can be and that also it's a it's a picture that we need to get over time and really try to understand the full picture so we've been talking about it in terms of um, well just how it looks in the child can you talk a little bit about the trauma-informed perspective and how how do you define um, being trauma-informed you know what does that term mean to you
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So to me, um, taking a trauma-informed perspective to the work means um, understanding that uh, trauma now and trauma in the past continues to impact us and the families that we work with. And um, to be intentional in the way we ask questions about what happened to the family and thinking about uh, and framing our interventions in a way that incorporates trauma in the way we understand the case and the family. Um, So when you say be
1: intentional about how we talk to the family, do you mean asking specific questions or do you
2: mean tone or what do you mean by be intentional? I I mean, I think both. I mean that we ask direct questions and, and and I came around to that uh, the long way. I used to really not want to do that and feel like you know the family will let me know when they're ready. Um, and I've learned that sometimes um, we need to let the family know that we can handle uh, what they're mm-hmm. gonna tell us. And so they, um, I don't know. if I, I remember uh, one of one of the people I used to work with uh, used to say, yeah, had t- told the story about. Um, uh, meeting with a child after they'd been in in therapy for many years and asking her questions about um trauma and uh the child and and she hadn't told her previous therapist any of it and and uh, when she was asked directly she answered and um, the therapist then said, "You know, why why didn't you tell your your other therapist?" And she said, "Oh, I didn't think he was ready to handle it. You know, he was <laughs> he wasn't ready to deal with it. You know, so so there's something about um, kind of communicating that there will that that we're not going to be bro- broken or 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 lose the ability to support them if if we have this information. But I also think that there has to be a level of respect, particularly in relationships that are not always." Um, let's say completely voluntary um, mm-hmm. in that they may not want to share with us immediately um, what has happened to them and they may not they, they, they may be worried about how we use this information if there's no trust built and so certainly trust building is an important initial uh, piece of trauma-informed work mm-hmm. um, and, and then we, we do want to consider how trauma may be impacting the interactions that we're having in the, in, in the moment with the family. So it's both about asking questions, but it's also about uh, kind of putting on a, like a trauma lens um, sure. in the interactions and trying to make sense of it through a trauma lens. Sure. Well, and, and when you talk about trust
1: building, it just makes me think of being strengths-based. You know that um, you know we all know this. You know that that the being strengths based in child welfare is so vitally important, and then I think when we get um, sort of task focused and we have big caseloads and we've got deadlines, it gets really common that we cut to the chase and go straight to here's the thing, here's the report, here's the thing that happened, here's the thing we're here to do, and so. I know that when I was doing the the daily work, I needed to remind myself constantly. Tell me about a time that you feel like the parent, you you really had fun with your kids. And tell me about some fun things you do as a family. And tell me about a time you feel like you handled a tough situation really well. And what do you want me to know about your household and your kids? I had to, I had to make myself remember to ask those questions mm-hmm. so that they knew that i knew that good stuff was happening too and i think that's part of that that trust building is then kind of laying the groundwork for mm-hmm. i see you as a whole person and i can also listen to the hard stuff that you've experienced yeah. as well
2: yeah i lo- i love that because uh, you're 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 you're, do- you're doing two things you're you're getting information that's helpful mm-hmm. to you and mm-hmm. so you can see the family in a more positive light, and you're and like you said they're also having the experience of of you hearing them giving you this information which which goes towards trust building and forming a, an authentic and genuine relationship with them that's that's sure. that's a that's a great example, sure
1: so then we talk about you know we've talked about trauma and kind of like probably the more traditional sense of incidents or specific things that have happened. Can you talk about the trauma-informed perspective when we think about historical trauma, generational trauma, epigenetics? Can you talk a little bit about those concepts? Because those concepts might
2: not be familiar to everyone. For sure. Um, and and these are concepts that are really uh, close to my heart, so I'm, I'm glad to talk about them. Um, so the idea of historical trauma is um, this idea that um, trauma can be carried. Um, from generation to generation, even if the actual cause of the trauma or the trauma itself is no longer there, and that it can, continues to transcend from generation to generation. Um, and so when you think about minority groups, um, for example, uh, you know people that are descendants, um, that they're Holocaust survivors or descendants of slavery, um, those are individuals that may have never, so the, the, the family you're working with may have never experienced the Holocaust, they may have never been slaves themselves, but the impact of what happened so many generations ago continues to live on in the current interaction. Some of this is explained by epigenetics, and epigenetics is really the study of how our behavior and our environment can cause changes um, that affect the way our genes work. So the so it's really fascinating because one tends to think of genes as pre, something pretty static,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: but 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 um, researchers like Michael Meaney and McGill and other people have really found out that you can actually alter uh, some of the ways the genes work um, by the environment that you create around it. Um, so it's no longer like a nature versus nature kind of debate that 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 really you can impact nature. Um, and so this process this epigenetic process really explains to us how trauma transcends from one generation to the next without the child themselves experiencing the trauma um so um and i've heard the, someone say uh trauma not transformed is transferred, which I thought was really mm-hmm. like a great little saying and, and it really mm-hmm. stuck with me and, and it may stick with you too. But this idea of, that if we don't do something about what happened to us and to our ancestors, we will transfer it to the next generation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so, um, so the, that's where the good news is, is that, um, that unlike genetic changes, the epigenetics is reversible, right? So that means that with the right intervention, we can repair um, the changes that occurred over time. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's really the aim of uh, you know, what anybody that, that's working um, with uh, families exposed to trauma and stress is, is hoping to do. What would that Repair
1: look like how does that repair work? Are you talking therapy or what? What do you mean by repair?
2: Um, well, <laughs> I think repair um, goes come starts with kind of what's happening, like internal um, to family to systems, because you know people talk about systemic uh, oppression and you know the way the system is set up to uh, favor some groups over others. So repair has to really happen. Uh, at m- many levels, um, I think what today what we're focusing on is how how do we repair the child and their family. Um, but mm-hmm. I would be remiss not to say that 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 repair um, without involving larger systems will, will be very tentative, and can be and and can, there there could be a um like a re traumatization um, that continues to occur because if we repair but the system continues to operate the same way the Mm -hmm. family's likely to experience the same um events that that brought them there in the first place sure sure so how do you think these issues show up in child
1: protection you know how does it like show up you know on an individual level uh, even on a systemic level you know when we're thinking about okay so then what do i do (laughs) what do i do with this family and what do i do with, with my system or, you know, just perhaps how I show up with a family.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. So I, I, I think this is really where we have to uh, spend a lot of time thinking together and talking together because I I, I agree with you. Um, the, the partnership with child welfare is incredibly important. Child welfare is a system that was created to, to protect children. Mm -hmm. And, um, we will not be able to protect the children or heal them um, until the their caregivers, their parents have healed
0: mm-hmm.
2: and have become available to them in a, in a new way. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, our partnership with parents is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And, and we began talking about that, Chris, when you were talking about asking them about, you know, Look, tell me about a, a, a good time that you had with your child. Tell me about something good that happened to you this week. um you know the, the 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 simplest way i can think about it is 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 about forming relationships right like how how mm-hmm. do you form how do you make a friend right how do you form relationships and i don't mean to say that you use your professional boundaries and and you become friends with mm-hmm. people with with individuals that you're you're there to serve but i do mm-hmm. mean that you approach them in a in a more equal kind of way um in a in a in a in, a, in a, in a way that suggests respect and that mm-hmm. you are there to understand them, that they know their child more better than anyone else, mm-hmm. that in most cases, um, children staying home is better than children being removed from their home. And mm-hmm. so what are the things that we can do to maximize this family's success in terms of being able to keep their child and in terms of them being able to um, to, to uh, change some of the ways they, they they're currently operating. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that happens by starting with addressing a family's concrete needs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, going, coming into a family and, and observe walking walk, and, and I'm, you know, I, um, I oversee a home visiting program. So we're very familiar with walking into homes and seeing, uh, how, how things might be in the house. And so, Um, one of the things we learned is that uh, when we walk in, the parent is often unavailable to do the kind of work that we're hoping to be able to do with them eventually Mm -hmm. because they are bombarded and burdened with so many daily stressors, right? Like they may be at risk of getting evicted. Sometimes it's a single, often it's a single mom managing multiple Mm -hmm. demands, an incredible amount of stress, multiple jobs, sometimes uh violence in the community uh, lack of food- l- so many things that are that are um stressing this parent and so the first step is to meet them where they're at right like wh- what are what are you current what was what happening for you right now what what are the ways that I can be helpful? what are the things that you need right now um, that's
1: <laughs> it's so interesting that you say that because um I, I have learned that lesson so many times in my career and I have to keep relearning it and relearning it that I think our, our child protection toolkit is therapy, treatment, therapies, treatment, <laughs> you know, that those are the things we go to. Well, if you're, if, if a person's experiencing distress, they must need therapy or they mm. must need treatment. And, and we forget that, you know, if you think about just basic needs I am not going to be able to attend to therapy if I don't know if I have an apartment tomorrow or if I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids tonight. And so I think we're getting better at thinking, you know, concrete needs first and then getting into those um, higher higher level stuff. But it's always such a good reminder about people need their basic needs met before Mm -hmm. they can go any further.
2: Yeah, and I and I'll add like from my perspective, from the other side as a treatment provider, that mm-hmm. um, the partnership with child first with um I'm sorry child welfare around these um, issues is incredibly helpful because often child welfare has access to mm-hmm. resources that a treatment provider does not, and so you know in, in the model we promote we that's what we do we in, we immediately decrease um, you know toxic stress by addressing families immediate needs and concrete supports and we be, and we start uh, with this uh, with the intervention the therapeutic intervention which is about rebuilding the relationship between the child and their parent but when we have partnership with child welfare all of that becomes so much easier, right? Like we we, we can, if, if we have a good partner in child welfare, we can talk about what the family needs. The child welfare workers often um, can access some, you know, and, and the child welfare worker often, and we'll get to that too, has so many case, their caseloads are huge, and they may not have the, the time to really Focus their attention on each family that they're serving, um, and so in in like kind of uh, sharing the workload in some ways, that that becomes a more manageable situation for both. I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I appreciate that because I feel like when I've seen situations that have the best chance of you know success, so to speak, or you know the the best outcomes that I can remember, it's been those times that we've we've really been able to to look at the whole situation and remember that, that, you know, the the importance of that therapeutic support and make sure that those um, basic needs are met and that they're just feeling more stable in their whole life situation. Mm -hmm. The other thing I just wanted to go back to was um, when you talked about Forming relationships and recognizing that the parents know their kids better. Mm-hmm. And um, it just reminds me of that, you know, just kind of the old fashioned, unconditional positive regard that I, I come into this with respect for you and your humanity and recognize, you know, people say to me, I don't know how you can do child protection um you know with parents who who you know have struggled to take care of their kids and um so, you know sometimes people use the words like bad parents or bad moms and it's mm-hmm. like i don't know any bad parents i know people who are struggling mightily mm-hmm. but i don't i don't know any parent who wakes up in the morning and says you know i want to do poorly by my kid you know all of us want to do well by our kids and we have all kinds of obstacles and i think Holding on to that and remembering that is just like the foundation of how we can be trauma informed as we walk into the to the home.
2: Yeah, and holding. Um, so we 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 tend to term that like a benevolent stance, right? Yeah. So kind of believing that the parent is doing the best they can, mm-hmm. um, really um, impacts the way we look at the situation and the family and what and the decisions mm-hmm. they're making. And again, you know, going back to this kind of to trauma informed lens, uh, when you know the family story, mm-hmm. um, and you see what's happening now, sometimes, often, you'll say, "Wow!" Compared to what this parent has been through, they are doing a phenomenal job with this child, right? And so, the the trauma lens also helps us with under kind of appreciating where the parent has been and 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 the hard work um, that they're currently doing so even the little bit that we see that we might have um, judged previously uh, once we understand the full story Mm -hmm. we have a different appreciation for where the parent is at and the choices they're making
1: sure sure I remember saying to families sometimes, how are you doing this?
2: Right. How, how are how are you getting through every day and right. getting
1: your kids to school and, and with, with the hurdles you're getting over? Absolutely. Like help me understand how where you find
2: the strength to do it. I agree. Yeah. I, I think the same thing. I sometimes, you know, I work with families and I'll imagine, you know, if I was the mom in this family, like would I be able to um would I be able to do as well, you know, um as this parent is doing. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and you think about like the impact of
1: COVID, um, you know, I heard from some of our child welfare staff that they were saying, you know, what's the impact of COVID on families who are already struggling? And it was kind of like, they were already struggling, you know, this isn't new. and mm-hmm. but, but now with COVID, they can't get evicted anymore, you know, and all of a sudden there's a lot more support available. So I was just hearing anecdotally That's that some of our families yeah, were almost doing, doing better with COVID or at least a little more
2: stable, mm-hmm. you know. No, I, I
1: that makes sense. So, when you talk about kids who are have experienced, you know, historical trauma, intergener, intergenerational trauma, um, or the you know whatever traumas they're experiencing in their present life, um, that a lot of the kids that we might be interacting with are struggling with the biological impact of high levels of stress. So, what can we as helping professionals do to promote resilience and healing? I think you've already started to. We, to we, that.
2: Yeah, we did start talking about that a little bit in terms of the importance of the relationship with the with the, we have with the family. I do think that there is like an important, uh, sometimes unspoken, uh, element here, and I think uh, Chris, you 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 may know more about it given your research. But this whole idea of um, the obstacles of working with families that don't really want us there, mm-hmm. um, right? And so um, and I and I and I think that is an area that we don't often get into, um, at mm-hmm. least um, in, in what I've been um, observing and reading. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think it might be worthwhile to spend a few minutes just thinking about that a little bit. Um, there's a recent article by uh, Ferguson and, and colleagues uh, that really writes beautifully about, about this. And uh, one of the things they write is that um, in order to think clearly about the families we serve um, we're influenced, right? We're influenced to a great deal, uh, to a great degree by our by our own levels of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. We're in, uh, we're influenced by the administrative pressures, right? We're talking about caseloads and deadlines mm-hmm. and requirements. We're we're mm-hmm. influenced by our implicit biases about the family, mm-hmm. and and a host of other factors. Um, and so they continue to write that to care about someone requires us to become emotionally attuned to their experience and to not retaliate in the face of hostility and anger.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
2: very difficult, especially when we feel that we're constantly under attack, right? Which often happens uh, when families don't want us there. Um, and so what happens is that uh, often um, there's a need to protect oneself, right? Um, there's like a, a feelings that are... Um, that are provoked, um, that are really um, difficult to acknowledge and accept within ourselves, and um, and so we build we and our the systems we work with build defenses around ourselves to that that protect us, but they also impede our ability to think clearly and to be reflective and to have a reflective practice around the choices we're making. Um, um, somebody by the name of Carr uses a, an interesting metaphor. They, they talk about clients throwing uh, bombs into encounters and mm-hmm. uh, that those bombs cause psychological sharpness, mm-hmm. um, that then the workers and the clients have to survive somehow, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the first things to do is to kind of become aware, right? Become aware yeah. that, the, these di- that there are these dynamics that are operating um, that we use to protect ourselves Mm-hmm. Um, but that really impacts the work and the way we see the family and the way we respond to the family.
1: I just appreciate that so much. <laughs> I think that it's such it's such important information for us to have in child welfare. And I, I just think in my own career, I how I've sort of processed through that, that it's, I, rem, I have felt those defenses and I have felt those experiences where I'm I feel like I, you know, get yelled at and then I get yelled at some more and then I get, you know, I've had things thrown at me and I've, you know, things like that where it's like I've been scared, you know, mm-hmm. for my safety. And so, you, you know, how it, it took a while for me to figure out how to hold on to my respect for that person's humanity when they're throwing things at me, and I really had to 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 get into some empathy about if I showed up at my house, mm. I wouldn't be happy either. Mm. <laughs> like in fact, I really started thinking about what kind of child protection client I would be, and I would not be anyone's favorite and I, I recognize that and so I tried to really think about the anger makes sense, you know the hostility makes sense and if i if I respond to it, going to get a hundred times worse Mm -hmm. and so you know figuring out how to how to join around this really unpleasant experience of having me at your house (laughs) and how, how can we get through it the best we can get through it so that so that you can be done and 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 we can address some of these real things that are there and that we can both feel like we've done the work and can can move on
2: yeah I think what you're saying is really important and um it makes me I mean I want to get to to some of what you um talked about in a minute but I'm really curious about how you did that like how how were you able to step away and w- what was the thing that helped you be able to do that because I could see it going in a diff- in a pos- potentially different yeah. direction. Right? Um I think part of
1: it was that I loved my job mm-hmm. and I got to the point where I was so stressed out and burned out that it was like, I either need to figure out how to stay or I need to go. Mm. And I didn't want to go, mm. you know? And so it was like, I think finding some, I think I, I've had a few clients along the way that have really stayed with me and taught me things. And I think I remember this one woman that I worked with and she was a, a, a long, long time, um, addict um, struggled with meth addiction and cocaine addiction and every time I uh, interacted with her she was so hostile and Mm -hmm. so angry and I was just constantly taking it from her and then there was one time I was at Target and my my kids were little and I saw her kind of across the store and I thought "Uh uh-oh and she looked the other way and she walked away and um, and then the next time I saw her, she was back to yelling and screaming at me. And that's, you know, this is a product of doing child protection in a small town. And I, I and, she, and she was doing the thing where she was really angry. And I just sat there for the longest time. And finally I said, I just need you to know that I'm not I'm not scared of you and I get why you're mad. And she just kind of stopped and and she said what are you talking about and i said you and i saw each other like we made eye contact at target and you could have totally come up to me you could have you could have made that ugly and you didn't and she said well you were there with your kids what was i going to do and i just said i just i appreciate i appreciate that you did that for me that day because out of you know this has been such an awful experience for you that it would have been really easy for you to charge up to me and and make that day hurt and you didn't and it was just one of those like I think we had just sort of uh we both had a moment where it's like we're two humans and and it it, it was one of I've had a few experiences like that where it made me sort of take myself out and not personalize it and just say you know, this is hard on, on all of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so let's figure out how to get through it without absorbing the anger and just kind of letting it roll off.
2: Mm. Yeah. And so that moment of encounter between you and her, that like a really authentic encounter between you and her really set the tone for the relationship. And what it what it sounds like what, what it sounds like happened was that she had learned a particular way of being that protected her in some ways right like if I'm hostile if I'm aggressive then people back off or people right. leave me alone or you know like that that is her self preservation uh, strategy and right. you said you know you could do all you want i'm still here i'm not broken i'm i'm still gonna talk we're still gonna be we're still gonna be i'm still available to you i'm i I can still have a relationship with you and that seems to have shifted something about uh your relationship with her um but but what's really remarkable is that that like through all the like you know you could have become jaded or you know Mm -hmm. feel like families are taking advantage or being hostile or it's unfair or whatever but you like you for somehow you took a different approach like you decided that um you were going Mm -hmm. to take this the the family's perspective and understand how life might be for them Um, well
1: and right man and I think it's that um that sense that we're all doing the best we can and um and I've also you know really tried to go into this work I've you know, I worry when it's, it's an us versus them thing. And Mm -hmm. I've really tried to go into this work thinking I'm a couple of privileges or life circumstances or decisions Mm -hmm. or whatever from being on the other side of this table. Mm -hmm. And, and any of us are, whether we want to believe that or not, any of us are. And so in my opinion, and so we just want to, I just want to, um, support people and, and treat people the way I want to be treated and also just see their humanness under the struggle mm. and, and because I think we're all doing the best we can.
2: You know, Chris, I think uh, what you said about that is is, is so important, um, like that you're, you're able to identify with the mm-hmm. family um, yeah. and for, um, and sometimes um, it's, it's really scary to do that, right? To think of ourselves as being so so close, almost there, right? And mm-hmm. so I think par- part of the reason um, we sometimes have a hard time connecting with the family is because we want to see ourselves as so different from them, right? Like we do not want to imagine that we could mm-hmm. be like them. We do not want to see ourselves in that way and that it takes uh, courage and um, and and some years of experience to 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 get to the point often when we're able to really acknowledge that, who that's that 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 hit close to home like that could have been me right
1: right well and just that feeling of um you know how terrifying that must be you know to to be at risk of losing your kids I can't right. I can't think of much right. that's worse than that and right. so yes that I hope that we in the field can can let ourselves be in people's shoes even if that feels scary.
2: Yeah. That that that's um kind of one of the things I I, I did want to also talk about this um you know the, uh, people use a term they say, they say suspended self-preservation uh where they talk about um kind of workers um consciously suspending reflection and acknowledgment of their feelings so they can protect themselves and their colleagues from from the horribleness, I, that's not a real word, but like how horrible
0: yeah. uh, a
2: situation might be. So mm-hmm. you know, and again, this is something that might be helpful in the short term because it gets one through the day, but in the long term, right, it can lead to burnout, a secondary trauma, a stress, bur- you know, um, numbness, you know, right. so where you can just stop feeling anything. Right. Um, and so, um, I on- I only know of one way. Uh, to counter the effect of this. And, and and for me, that has been good reflective supervision. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I don't know how much time we're gonna have to talk about that. But for, for me, reflective supervision is really a, a safe space where a worker mm-hmm. can speak about their feelings, acknowledge them, right? Mm-hmm. Acknowledge that they might have very difficult feelings about the work they're doing think through their feelings and their actions in the presence of a caring Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, supervisor. um, Starting to sound a lot like uh, what we were talking about with with children and parents, right? And then feel contained and supported uh, so that they can go out and do this very difficult work, right? Um, Some people refer to this as a holding environment. I really love that term, a holding environment. It it, it means kind of taking... um, taking the feelings and then returning mm-hmm. them in a digestible format, mm-hmm. um, which is what a parent needs to do um, with their child. And it's also what a good supervisor does with their supervisee. It's what a good partner does with their partner when, uh, when there's a, a high emotional situation. Um And And it's also it's
1: caring for the caregiver, you know, that that this is such hard work that providing that support for the child protection worker, you know, that so that they are able then to do the work with the families. And that's that's incredibly important is is to is to look out for our workforce so that they've got what they need and can stay healthy
2: and and strong through it. Right. And so these types of parallel processes, right, that, that kind of that's one of the core um, kind of uh, th- theories about why reflective supervision works is that if you if you're able to give that to to the worker, then the worker is able to give it to the family, and the family able to give it to the child. There's kind of this nested model of support. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it, in reflective supervision, the workers can learn um, strategies to diffuse these potentially explosive relationships. Um, they can pay attention to these co-constructed, and I really want to say co-constructed because there, there's not there's not one way. There's a there's an exchange that happens that ends up with a, a hostile uh, mm-hmm. dynamic in a relationship. How to work through um, resistances, um, and to me, really important, acknowledging power differentials and inequity in this relationship because we try to make it seem as if there isn't, but. But like you said, what's scarier than having someone take away your children? So we, right. we can try as much as we can to to um, meet on, on an equal F, uh, playing field. Um, mm-hmm. but, th- but there is, there is somebody mm-hmm. is holding power in this relationship. And um, if it's not acknowledged, um, mm-hmm. it, it could be played out in, in uh, punitive ways with the family. And so we really need to be really mindful of the power we're holding, how we're using it, um mm-hmm. especially when the relationship with the parent is is not is not great mm-hmm. um some people advocate um introductions of family advocates as a way of equalizing the relationship a little bit i think a lot of um at least in in Connecticut here we have um we do have uh, family advocacy as part of um uh child welfare services sure when you think of um yeah, you said so,
1: like there's I have a couple yeah. of different questions. When you think about the power differential and then you think about um historical trauma and um and that type of thing, um mm-hmm. can you can you talk a little bit about how those two things can sort of play off each other, the the power differential that a child protection worker might have and how that
2: might butt up against that historical trauma? Absolutely. Um, I'm, gra- I'm glad you raised that. Um, so, so in many ways, in an unconscious kind of way, and in most cases, people don't mean to do that. But um, when when people have carried with them for a very long time this experience of being persecuted or being mistreated, um, they. The, um, there is a tendency to reenact those relationships over and over again, and they get reenacted in the hopes for a different outcome. Really, is why they're they're getting played over and over again. Um, but when we are not aware of this dynamic going on, we end up playing into the reenactment and and it ha- it, it ending up in the in the same way again. Um, and let let me try and explain a little bit more what I mean. And so. Um, that happens too in like uh, situations of uh, intimate partner violence right People get into the same patterns of relationships hoping things will turn out differently. they don't turn out differently often they end up in the same cycle and it repeats itself right And so when someone has been through trauma, um, trauma reenactment is a is a familiar term um, in the field of of trauma and and so people, um, um, unconsciously recreate the experience again. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm as a child welfare worker, I'm not paying attention to that, um, I will respond in the way that this parent expects me to respond, which is the same way everyone has responded to me in the past, right? And so if I become hostile, or if the parent becomes hostile, I will retaliate and become hostile back. And not only will I become hostile, I hold the power. And so I can really, really harm them, right? And sure. so if, I, if I'm if i not paying attention to this dynamic, I'm really um, re- recreating the system of oppression in the relationship again without meaning to. Sure. And so the way to counter this is to notice it, right? And to notice mm-hmm. and say, and then to make a conscious decision that you are not going to respond the way that you would be expected to respond. You are going to take a different approach. It's exactly what you did with... Um, with the person you mentioned earlier where she, Mm -hmm. you know, she's in a hostile relationship with you. She expects you to return to hostility with hostility and you say, Listen, I really appreciated that you you know you didn't come up to me and and yell at me and make make a scene at the store like you know that you know and and she was taken aback like whoa that is not the script I'm used to right like right. you you are changing the script on me here and so that so then our brain becomes starts shifting and when this experience happens this is what we talk about, this is exactly what epigenetics and changing the genes means right so our brain is wired in a certain way and now you are rewiring it because of the way you're responding to her she's like ooh there's a different way this is a, this is a different way i'm not used to this this is not the script i have learned my whole life and sure. so and so that is the intervention okay
1: wow so then so then when you know you talked about the the relationship that can Become charged up and even hostile between a child protection worker and and a person um, receiving the services voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, And so like what you're saying is, you know, for us as child welfare workers to be able to tolerate however we need to tolerate you know, what that interaction looks like and not, not escalate with the interaction. And it, it sounds like that means self-care, that reflective supervision, you know, taking it wherever we need to take it. I'm I'm assuming you set some limits too, though, right? You know, that, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an there's amount of tolerating it. And then there's a point where we say, okay, we're going to have to stop for today. Is that, is that fair to say
2: too? Yeah. And I think it's uh, similar to the question you asked earlier about like, who defines trauma like yeah. who decides what's enough right and mm-hmm. so you know i i'm thinking of a um, um an african-american man i worked with that had a case uh, and the family was incredibly racist and mm-hmm. i said to him if if you don't feel like you can you can handle it we will we'll find someone else to work with this family but he felt like he wanted to stick it out like he felt like you know what i think if i work with them I might, they might be, I might be able to change the way they think about um, race and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and I, and so for him, that it was important for him to stay in this relationship. Now, it's not, I would not have insisted that he work with his family because that would have been incredible and like unfair if he was saying like they, they, they're, they're, you know, and, and there's also, of course, the element of sometimes needing to protect staff if they're, if they, if they're, threshold for tolerance of abuse so sure. to speak um, yeah. is it, it has gone kind of a, a, a too, too too high um, th- then as a supervisor you might step in and say you know what like um, I, I think we we need either I, we need to step in we need to take a different approach we need to respond this, to this family differently um, but there's something empowering too about um, working through some of these difficult relationships that I've I've observed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, going back to reflective consultation, that that's the, that's the place to process it. You know, that I interacted with this person and they got very escalated and very angry. And, you know, and I came out and felt this. you know, it was tolerable for me or it wasn't tolerable for me. And with everything else I have going on in my life. I can or can't, you know, do it. And that's what happens in reflective consultation is what's my emotional response to this and how can we process through with with my supervisor so that I can go back and figure out how I process through with the family.
2: Yeah. And and, um, you know, I I, just add to what you said is it's not it's not just not good for the worker. It's also not good for the family if, uh, you know, if the, if the worker is in a situation where the, the stress level of what they're having to manage is beyond what they're able to, to manage. Sure, um, sure. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, given everything we've talked about here today, mm. what are the, the take home messages that you want us to have?
2: Well, um, you know, there's a term called the uh, respectful uncertainty Mm -hmm. Um, that's been used to capture the balance of trust and doubt that a child welfare worker needs to achieve in their work. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have kind of these relationships that by definition are marked by mutual suspicion, right? Um, and and, and nonetheless they have to be sustained over time, right? The child welfare is there to ensure the safety of the child and so they have to balance the trust and the the relationship they're building with the caregiver with a a healthy dose of doubt, right? Because that's what they're there to to assess risk. Um, And from what we've talked about, um, we know um, that the quality of the relationship is really what is fundamentally going to Change the outcome and lead to long-lasting change,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and so f- for me, like the key question really is, um, how can this be accomplished? Like, right? like how can we balance those things and have a quality relationship with the parent? And um, and this isn't from me. This is from uh, I don't know. Maybe we can share this article la- later with uh, with the listeners. Um, but I, from what I've from from what I'm reading, there are really a few key uh, components, um, to ensuring a good quality relationship with a caregiver. And so I think that's probably where, where I want to end. Um, the first one is reliability, you know, and with Mm -hmm. reliability, I don't just mean like showing up on time. It's, um, it's really the, the, um, the caregiver coming to believe that you care for them and that you keep them in mind and that you, are thinking about them uh, in a reliable kind of way. You're you're reliable in the way you show up every time. You're not one time really angry and one time incredibly Mm -hmm. friendly. You're a consistent presence in this family's life. Uh, The immersion, um, immersing oneself in the family's life and helping them, Mm -hmm. uh, which we also talked about. Um, Intimacy and getting kind of both emotionally and physically close to the family. And by physically close, I mean, like some, um, you know, there's been some writing about kind of um, the, how what the parent experiences when the child welfare worker picks up their baby, of course, with permission, but like what that means to them sometimes that, that, that they are in, interacting with their child and what that looks like. And like there are a lot of caveats around that, but mm-hmm. but this idea of caring for their child and being intimate with them. Um, and then providing what's called like an ethical holding environment, right? So the, this holding environment, the when why, the reason they call it ethically holding environment is because it acknowledges a, a power and inequity in the relationship, right? So it's a holding environment that also acknowledges these these inequities. Um, and so I think if we hold these kind of few principles in mind as we um, as we work with the families, I think. Um, I think that's the main takeaway. Um, Okay. Claire, uh, many people know uh, Winnicott, right? I think so. Okay. (laughs) So Winnicott was one of he. He talked about um, holding environments and all all that good stuff. But his wife was a social worker, and she actually worked in child welfare. um, And she said something really beautiful. So perhaps I'll end with her with her quote. So she says, I think uh, basically the technique lies in the provision of a reliable medium within which people can find themselves or that bit of themselves which they are uncertain about. We become so to speak a reliable environment which is what they so much need, reliable in time and place. And we take great trouble to be where we said we would be at the right time. We're not only reliable in time and place but in the consistent attitudes which we maintain towards people, they know how they will find us um, and I'll stop here, but she she writes beautifully about mm-hmm. um, the relationship she's done actually I think uh, her husband was greatly influenced by the work she's done, uh, particularly in child welfare, and so um, we will we, we'll, we will share these resources if that's okay because I think uh, those are uh, great re- references, sure.
1: Well, yeah. I think to, to close on that message, I, the, the words I have in my head are just like deep compassion, deep compassion for the families that we work with and, and being present and reliable for them. So thank
2: Thanks, you. The, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. This was a great conversation today. Okay. So I appreciate your
0: time. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service, Children and Family Services Division.